Hello, my name's Luke, and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away with murder. This week, we're going to continue the story of North Korea and move on from the exploits of Kim Jong-il to his death and how his successor was chosen. We'll tell the story of Kim Jong-nam, his oldest son, and once believed to be his successor. Finally, we'll go into the events which led up to his assassination in Kuala Lumpur International Airport by two aspiring actresses. You won't want to miss part two of our North Korea series. So if you understand, this is part two. There was a part one. I'd advise you to listen to it before this. We go into the creation of North Korea and its culture. But for those who didn't listen to it or those who don't want to listen to it, here's a quick summary. After World War II, Korea was divided between communist Russia in the north and capitalist America in the south. These countries were meant to reunify, but neither the north or south wanted to give up their political system. The North was controlled by Kim Il-sung, a military man who had fought against the Japanese and was trained by Russia, while the South were controlled by various democratically elected leaders. In 1950, the North invaded the South in an attempt to try and reunify under communism by force. However, three years of interventions by China, USA and United Nations left both Koreas pretty decimated and the border was actually loosely the same as it was before the war. So after peace, both sides became entrenched and Kim Il-sung controlled North Korea with an iron fist until his death in 1994. His son Kim Jong-il took over after his death. This was largely expected to happen, as Kim Jong-il was Kim Jong-il's oldest son, and being male, and North Korea being like a male-dominated country, the men are naturally going to be the ones who take over. While Kim Il-sung did have other male children, they were all younger, and they were all from different wives, because Kim Jong-il was from his second wife, who was celebrated, while the rest were from his third wife, who wasn't so celebrated, so naturally Kim Jong-il had an advantage, so when it came to taking over, it was pretty much a cinch. The only person who could have really challenged him was his younger brother, Kim Man-il, who was also from Kim Il-sung's second wife. However, Kim Man-il drowned at the age of four while playing with his brother, Kim Jong-il. This is actually quite an interesting event, There's been a lot of discussion about what happened and where it happened. North Korea sources claim that there was a pond close to Pyongyang in North Korea where Kim Man-il accidentally fell in and drowned. And this caused a great upset to his brother Kim Jong-il who was best friends of his little brother and he really loved him. While Russian sources claim this isn't true. Kim Man-il was actually living in Russia at the time and he fell into a well close to Vladivostok in Russia. Now you might wonder, how could he have been in North Korea and Russia at the same time? This is because, like, propaganda purposes. Kim Jong-il always wants to claim, oh, I was always in Korea, I was never in Russia, but I would trust the Russian sources more. South Korean tabloids have actually even speculated Kim Jong-il may have drowned his little brother, but there's no direct evidence of this. It just is what South Korea thinks is something Kim Jong-il might have done. However, this left Kim Jong-il with only one full-blooded sibling, Kim Kyun-hye. But since she was a girl, there was no way she could challenge for power. Pretty much from the 1970s, Kim Jong-il began to get placed into positions of power throughout North Korea until the late 80s when he was effectively just running the country day-to-day and his father, Kim Il-sung, was in semi-retirement and was only there appearing to make major decisions if needed or stepping in if he believed Kim Jong-il was making a mistake. 
During this time, Kim Jong-il was guided by his sister, Kim Kyun-hae, again, and her politically influential husband, Jang Sung-chik. Jang had quickly risen through the ranks of North Korea's political elite and was seen outside of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il as the most powerful man in the country. Kim Kyun-hae was equally influential. After the death of her and Kim Jong-il's mother at the age of three, she had been taken away from the capital and raised by surrogates. This quickly hardened Kyun-hae and made her ruthless and having a very bad violent streak. Those who witnessed this were shocked by her brutality and quickness to anger. Even her brother, who was viewed as all-powerful, stated once that when she got angry, there was nothing even he could do about it. With the death of Kim Il-sung in 1994, Kim Jong-il took control of North Korea and ruled it with an iron fist with the help of his brother-in-law and sister. Surely the next transition of power would be equally simple. Now, you might wonder what happened to Kim Il-sung's half-brothers who didn't end up taking power. They're largely all expelled from North Korea and made ambassadors of small countries just to keep them out of the way. Part 2. Kim Jong-il's successors. So we're going to look into the relationships of Kim Jong-il and see who are the likely contenders to replace him when he died. In 1966, Kim Il-sung introduced his son to Hong Il-chon, who was picked by him just to be a good candidate for the First Lady of North Korea. Now, you imagine Kim Il-sung is all-powerful, so if he says you get quickly married, you get quickly married. And the couple got married and had a daughter called Kim Hae-gyun. However, Kim Jong-il quickly got bored of his new wife, and they had divorced by 1969. This daughter doesn't even really have a Wikipedia page, little is known about her. Since she was a girl, she didn't really stand much chance of being Kim Jong-il's heir. The girl is so overlooked, most sources only describe Kim Jong-il as having five children and never really talk about this girl. Perhaps she died as an infant and that's why so little is known, but you know North Korea, little transparency. So before divorcing his first wife, Kim Jong-il started an affair with a North Korean film actress called Son Hae-rim. In 1971, she gave birth to Kim Jong-il's firstborn son, who he called Kim Jong-nam. Now, unlike when Prince William has a new child and the US, UK and German media spend six months guessing what the name or gender of the child is, this was kept as a complete secret from Kim Jong-il's father. This was because the child was born out of wedlock and conceived by two divorcees. Kim Jong-il was delighted to have a son, but was afraid of what his father might do to him. Kim Jong-il's sister, Kyun-hae, begged to adopt the child so it could live a sheltered life. However, Jong-il refused, keeping the child hidden with his mistress's sister and putting out a standing order that anyone who talked about his personal life was to be put to death. So you can see, a little bit paranoid, but doesn't want his father to learn. Now here's where records get a bit sketchy, but the next person Kim Jong-il had a serious relationship was a lady called Kim yun suk Now it's a similar story to how he met his first wife. His father turned up one day and said, Here, I've handpicked a lady for you, son. And Kim Jong-il was pretty much forced to marry her. This marriage again produced another child, a girl called Kim Sol-sung. Again, girl not really standing a chance of becoming leader. But unlike her older sister, what happened to her is known. She actually became a favourite of Kim Jong-il and acted as a secretary throughout his later life, following him around, helping him throughout his reign. Kim Young-suk, uh, so her mother, his second wife, soon became estranged from her husband. However, they did not officially divorce, so 
she was the first lady of North Korea between 1994, but wasn't really ever seen in public. So after the birth of his second daughter and the estrangement of his wife, Kim began to panic that he would not have another male heir. So he revealed the existence of Kim Jong-nam to his father. Little is known about this conversation or what Kim Il-sung's reaction was. However, the child seemed to be legitimised and therefore appeared to be Kim Jong-il's heir. Jong-nam, however, was sent out of the country and tutored in Switzerland and Russia before returning to North Korea and working in the propaganda department, the same as his father. Although, he didn't kidnap any directors, referred to the last episode. Around 1977, Kim Jong-il began to have another affair, the sly dog, with a dancer called Ko Young-hyu. With Ko, Kim Jong-il fathered his last three children, two boys called Kim Jong-chul and Kim Jong-un, and one daughter, his youngest, called Kim Yo-jong. Ko was a bit of a strange person for Kim Jong-il to be having an affair with, because according to her song Bon, which you might learn about in the part one, but basically it's the North Korean social system, you need a high sungbong to be good in society. But she was close to the bottom level. First thing is, she was half Japanese, half Korean. Now in North Korea, and to a slightly lesser extent in South Korea, racial purity is seen as ultra important. So to be half Japanese, who are the people who controlled Korea and committed war crimes against it, is a huge deal. Even worse, Ko's father had worked with the Japanese military, making them the worst possible class. Pretty much if you think about this, these kids and this affair, it isn't looked on very well because it's just like, dude, he's having an affair with half a Japanese person. So like Kim Jong-nam before him, all Ko's children ended up being educated abroad before returning to Korea. But if you look at it from the outside, Kim Jong-nam, the oldest son, looked like the one with the highest songbun, like social status, and would doubtless become the heir apparent. With the death of his grandfather in 1994, he quickly rose up through North Korean politics, being put in a position of heir apparent by 1998. He was a firm favourite of his aunt Kim Hyun-hye, who also wanted to adopt him all those years ago, and she was backing him, with powerful figures in North Korea coming behind him. However, Kim Jong-nam was restless. He really enjoyed his time abroad and found North Korean life a little repressive, even for him, because he was the son of the leader and he really couldn't do everything that he wanted. So from 1995, he began to take secret trips abroad, travelling under fake travel documents. He'd go to places like Japan or Macau. However, in 2001, when travelling to Japan, Kim Jong-nam was stopped by the Border Patrol. He was travelling with two women and one small child. He was using forged Dominican passport and using a Chinese name, which translated to Fat Bear. After being interrogated for three days, he was deported back to China, where he told the waiting press he had just wanted to go to Disneyland with his son. This caused a major embarrassment for both North Korea and China, with Kim Jong-il forced to cancel an upcoming trip to China out of pure embarrassment. Kim Jong-nam wished to return home to North Korea, but his father refused to let him in for the next year, as he was that furious with him. Kim Jong-nam returned the next year, but by 2003, he again had fled, living in China, Singapore and Macau over the next few years. So, from this point, it became clear Kim Jong-nam couldn't be the heir apparent because he had embarrassed his dad so much. But who could be? 
it was clear Kim wished for one of his two younger sons to take over. So after her death in 2004, Ko, Kim Jong-chul and Kim Jong-un's mother, a cult of personality was set up around her to try and make her seem like the great mother of Korea and someone who is respectable for her sons to be like taking over as leader. However, due to her Japanese heritage and low song bun, this didn't immediately work. So Ko began to be known by different aliases so people couldn't link her sons back to the heritage because people don't really even mention today but Kim Jong-un is a quarter Japanese which would be absolutely scandalous when get you executed for saying in North Korea. Kim Jong-chul and Kim Jong-un began to get higher and higher positions in the North Korean political structure. However, Kim Jong-il came to the conclusion the older boy, Kim Jong-chul, was too warm-hearted and too girly to take over power. So he began to concentrate on Kim Jong-un. So from about 2009, 2010, Kim Jong-il was feeling like, I really need a good successor. He had a stroke. And then, you know, he pretty much decided, here, I'm just going to appoint Kim Jong-il as my successor so there's no confusion. Kim Jong-il died in December 2011 and there was a mandatory mass mourning throughout the country. He was replaced by his 27-year-old son, Kim Jong-un, who was backed by his aunt and uncle-in-law, who were hugely powerful in Korea. Part 3. Kim Jong-un consolidates power. Kim Jong-un was initially happy to have the support of his aunt and uncle-in-law, who were very powerful figures who gave him legitimacy. They also had experience of running a country of Kim Jong-un's father, and this was very valuable to him. However, clashes began to appear between Kim Jong-un and his uncle Jan. Kim Jong-un had studied in Switzerland as a boy and was very fond of water parks. One of the first things Kim Jong-un wanted to do when he took power was to build North Korea's first water park with slides and a wave pool and all that good stuff. However, his uncle Jiang told Kim not to do this immediately and was a bit of a buzzkill. Jiang had always been a bit more moderate than Kim's father and since Kim was so young, he wished to influence him into doing more economic reforms rather than spend his money on vanity projects. But Kim was all for the vanity project, so he ignored his uncle and said, ha I'm going ahead and building this water park anyway. But caused a bit of tension between the two men. This tension grew when his aunt and uncle kind of showed their fondness for Kim Jong-nam, his older half-brother. His uncle wished for Kim Jong-nam to be able to return from exile. However, Kim Jong-un had a standing order to assassinate Kim Jong-nam, as he believed there was a plot out there to try and replace him and due to his paranoia he refused to have anything to do with Kim Jong-nam and anytime his aunt and uncle mentioned him the relationship kind of started to go a bit downhill. So by 2013 the cracks began to appear in North Korean leadership with Uncle Jiang missing out many important meetings. Kim began to think his uncle was getting a bit too big for his boots. Although he was the second most powerful man in North Korea Kim knew who number one was him and he decided to make sure everyone knew. There was a final clash when Kim Jong-un decided the fisheries on the west coast of Korea, they had always previously been under army influence, but he decided he would take over with direct government control, with the money going straight to the Kim family. Initially, this is what happened, but his uncle Jang had a lot of influence with the North Korean army, and they were upset by the decision. Without telling Kim Jong-un, his uncle Jiang sent troops loyal to him to retake the fisheries for the North Korean army. So in doing this, he attacked and killed troops loyal to Kim Jong-un 
and took control over all of these fisheries. So Jiang is pretty much flexing his muscles and saying, what are you going to do, Kim Jong-un? So Kim Jong-un, in response, in a show of power, sent a huge amount of troops to attack the forces loyal to Jiang. After crushing them, Kim called a Politburo meeting to try and resolve the crisis. However, it was a trap. Fearing that, you know, if he sent the army to arrest Jiang, they might betray him, Kim Jong-un sent his own older brother, Kim Jong-chol, so his full brother, not his half-brother, Kim Jong-chol, and the police officers, to arrest Jiang at the meeting. So Jiang quickly underwent a show trial, with him being accused of many crimes against North Korea, such as, like, embezzlement, being a traitor, being pro-West, and he was swiftly executed. This execution has been questioned. How did this happen? What were the methods? Initially, it was reported he was stripped naked and thrown into a room with starving dogs who ate him alive. So pretty much the Ramsay Bolton Game of Thrones ending. Then it was reported this was false. He was actually killed by a firing squad. Next, it was claimed that was false and he was actually killed by an anti-aircraft fire. So they stuck him in the stadium and fired guns at him and blew him apart. And the remnants of him were fed to dogs. So needless to say, we don't know quite what happened to him. But he died brutally and painfully. Around this time, Jiang's wife and Kim Jong-un's aunt, Kim Kyun-hae, also disappeared. Defectors have claimed Kim Jong-un poisoned her after she openly complained to him about killing her husband. Now, it's claimed that she's either dead or in a vegetative state. But, you know, Kim Jong-un, by this point, he's got rid of his aunt and uncle and completely seized power over North Korea, being the unquestioned leader. However, he still had the problem of a rogue older brother who could potentially claim to rule over him one day. As the Daily Star, the one in Taipei, not in London, said in an article, Jiang's death was pretty much a clear indication that Kim Jong-nam should be next on the list and should watch his back. Part 4. Kim Jong-nam, 2003 until death. So as previously stated, Kim Jong-nam had fled North Korea in about 2003 been living in different places such as mainland China, Singapore, Macau. After this, he had just left North Korea, began to live a lavish lifestyle of a playboy traveling around the Far East. He wore the best clothes, went to casinos, party with beautiful ladies, and this was widely reported to the annoyance of his father, Kim Jong-il. Around this time, he began to travel around with the alias Kim Cho, which is probably the most generic name possible. I still prefer being called Fat Bear, but he went around by the name Kim Chul, so not to get attention, but like calling yourself John Smith, people begin to get a bit suspicious. So Kim Jong-nam, also around this period, began to speak out against the North Korean regime, saying it badly needed reform and needed to take on capitalist ideas. He became the first member of the Kim dynasty to really give an interview to the Western press. You can imagine his father was not impressed. So Kim Jong-nam was living under Chinese protection, Whenever he went to visit his brother Kim Jong-jul in Munich, he was stopped at Budapest airport by North Korean agents and barely escaped with his life. During this period, North Korea allegedly got agents to try and set up different car crashes to kill him, just different elaborate assassinations, but Kim Jong-nam managed to avoid them. In 2009, Kim Jong-nam openly announced he had no interest in becoming the leader of North Korea and it was up to his father to decide who his successor was. Also, he was kind of seen around by a lot of like South Koreans around Beijing airport. He'd happily talk to them about life in North Korea. So he's kind of showing up North Korea a bit because, you know, he's talking smack about it. If South Koreans want to say, oh, is South Korea better than North Korea? He's like, yeah, sure. So like, you know, 
he's generally not acting the way the North Korean high-ups really want him to act, so his life's in danger. At about this point, he befriended a Japanese journalist, and they began an email correspondence with each other. So Kim Jong-nam decided, like, he wanted to do some interviews with this journalist, and he ended up publishing a book called My Father, Kim Jong-il. This was published just one month after his father's death, and he stated many things about his father, that, like, he said he was warm-hearted, but he wasn't a good man, and if you expected him to be nice to his half-brother's regime, he wasn't. He called Kim Jong-un a joke to the outside world. He also called him too young and too inexperienced to succeed. So, way to get out of, like, your father trying to kill you and getting your half-brother to try and kill you. You shouldn't be saying these things. Now, honestly, Kim Jong-un probably still would have targeted Nam at this point, but you don't give an interview one month after your father's death with the new guy and basically, like, my brother sucks because I think Kim Jong-un's the kind of guy to kind of, like, take a slight to this and, you know, not smart. So Kim Jong-un, as I said earlier, had a standing order that Kim Jong-nam needed to be killed as an order of most importance. Kim Jong-nam wrote to his half-brother saying, look, look, there's no need for frets. I'm begging you. Leave me alone from these North Korean assassins. Everything will be cool. Everything will be cool. But, like, you know, maybe you shouldn't be talking smack about your brother before this. Around this time, he began starting his own Facebook page under the alias Kim Chul, with pictures of him living a high life, openly available, and with notifications very easy for people to find where he was and track his movements, because if you wanted to find him, everyone knew Kim Chul's Facebook page in, like, the intelligence services, so you could say, where is he today? Oh, he signed into, like, a Beijing casino. Cool, cool, that's where he is now. So not a very smart man whose life is in danger to be updating your Facebook so much. But, you know, things weren't even as rosy as it seemed because he was kind of like trying to be a baller and he was trying to make people think, oh, this Kim Jong-nam, he's straight up rich. But he ended up the same year being kicked out of a Macau hotel for not being able to pay his bill. Now, Kim Jong-nam during this period frequently had to flee countries fearing for his life from assassins. Part 5. The Assassination Siti Aisha was born in a small rural village in Indonesia, west of Jakarta. She came from a religious Muslim family, getting her name from the Prophet Muhammad's favourite wife. She gained little education, being schooled only to the age of 12. After this, she began to work for her father, carrying heavy bags of spices on her back and travelling village to village. Wanting to escape her life, she was drawn to the metropolis of Jakarta, so by the age of 14, she was working 13 hours a day, in a sweatshop for $50 a month. By the age of 16, she began to date the sweatshop owner's son and they married and had a baby boy. The sweatshop was struggling for money, so the couple moved to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to try and make their fortune. However, things did not succeed. By 2002, the couple split with Aisha forced to move home with her parents. After leaving her four-year-old son with her parents, she moved back to Malaysia to try and get money to raise her family. However, bad luck and a lack of work meant Aisha only had one choice when she got to Malaysia and that was to go into prostitution. She put forward a facade to her parents pretending that she was successful in business and avoiding questions about where her money exactly came from. One day, Aisha was approached by a man called James who said he was starting a prank channel on YouTube which would target the Chinese and Japanese market 
and they would pay her $100 per video. This was more than Aisha made in a month and she gladly accepted. When growing up, Aisha had always dreamed of being an actress and she saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to live her dreams. The first prank was fairly easy. It was just to smear hot sauce and oil over men in a quality hotel in Kuala Lumpur. Easy $100. Aisha asked to see the footage, wanting to see herself on camera, but was told needed to be edited. Wait a few weeks, we'll show you then. She was flown to Cambodia and did a similar prank for another $100. Easy. This YouTube thing seemed a lot easier than a hard day's work. Soon her salary had been up to $200 per prank. Everything was going so great. Same thing happened to Doi Chin Hyung. Similar story. She was born in rural Vietnam and grew up in poverty. But she felt that, you know, she could make it big in show business. However, after only 20 seconds on Vietnam Idol, she had been eliminated. A lack of opportunities meant that she ended up working as an escort in Hanoi. However, Hyung was approached to appear for a YouTube prank channel. Who was she to say no to her dreams? When Hyung and Aisha entered Kuala Lumpur Airport on the 13th of February, they didn't sense anything was wrong. They met the nice man who had offered them the opportunity for stardom and told him who the target of their prank was going to be. It was a large, balding man with a backpack. But don't worry, James would point him out when he came. Both girls were dressed for the camera. Hyung was wearing an eye-catching LOL t-shirt. They were going to be stars. James was giving them oil and told him, put it on the man's face. But he warned the girls it would be important to wash their hands after the prank, as the oil was super smelly. Come to think about it, James was right. The oil seemed a little different this time. Before it had been odourless, and now it had a vague smell of machine oil. James pointed at the target, and Aisha got ready for action. The target was in front of the self-check-in machine, and was easily distracted, and an easy target for the prank. She walked up behind him and put her hands over his eyes, as if to play peekaboo, then wiped oil all over his mouth. Who are you? spluttered the man. Sorry, sorry, said Aisha, as she melted into the crowd, looking for the nearest bathroom. No, it was Shung's turn to shine, and she knew it would be important for her career to upstate Aisha. Throwing her arms round his shoulder, she really mushed the oil into his face. After the prank, both women went looking for James, but they couldn't find him. Strange, he still owed them $200 each, but both were eager to know when the next prank would happen. Hyung thought it was a misunderstanding, so she returned to the airport the next day in search of James, possibly thinking he could still be there. But instead, she was taken aside by the police. Aisha was picked up a few hours later, but she had figured it out. This was just the next step of James's prank show. Ah. Oh. You know, James, he was quite a tricky one. So she was quite bored when the first officer asked questions, said, here, can I leave? And then she began to ask the second officer about the money she was owed. It was unfair of them to move on to the next prank without paying her. She needed that money for her family. It wasn't until the police brought a newspaper that she knew she was in trouble. Plastered in the front page were grainy pictures of her at the airport. And the headline was about the death of a North Korean politician. Aisha broke down into tears. When Kim Jong-nam had entered the airport, he would have been nervous. He had $120,000 in cash given him to by a CIA contact for revealing information about North Korea. But he was a hunted man. So when the first woman put oil on his face, he was angry. But when the second, he was scared. His muscles began to seize up 
as he went to the bathroom to clear off the oil, but he made the fatal mistake of turning away from the bathroom and going to complain for the information ask about feeling really ill. By the time he was in the airport medical bay, he could barely walk. And by the time the ambulance was driving him to hospital, he was dead. As you can guess, James wasn't a Japanese YouTube producer, but rather a North Korean secret agent. After the attack, him and his three colleagues got on a plane to Dubai, then Vladivostok, and finally to Pyongyang. The route had been specially designed to knock over airspace of any country that might ask for the plane to be grounded. They were home free. Kim Jong-nam had been killed by VX gas, which had strong links to North Korea. Showing a picture of James on her phone to Malaysian authorities confirmed their suspicions that they were dealing with North Korean agents. Two North Korean diplomats were detained, but as the Malaysian authorities couldn't prove that they were directly involved, they were let go after two weeks and were on the first plane back to Pyongyang. North Korea explicitly denied their involvement in the killing, claiming Kim Jong-nam had simply had a heart attack as he had had a pretty bad heart condition. They insisted that Kim Jong-un wanted the body of his brother returned to him for an immediate funeral. Malaysia denied this demand, but within a few days, there was an attempt to break into Kuala Lumpur morgue with an obvious culprit. Malaysia, truly annoyed now, expelled the North Korean ambassador, and as a response, North Korea barred all Malaysians from leaving North Korea, essentially keeping them prisoner. After a month and a half standoff, Malaysia caved, giving the corpse back to North Korea and letting free suspects out of the North Korean embassy to fly home. This left only the two women who committed the prank, and under Malaysian law, if they were found guilty of murder, they'd both hang. Both women faced lengthy murder trial, which only started the next year and continued until March 2019. In March, Aisha was released without charge. It was revealed by the media that the Indonesian government had put massive pressure on Malaysia to release her. However, there was anger in Vietnam as they hadn't released Chung. Vietnam was really upset because both women had committed the same crime. Why did Aisha get a pardon and Hyung face death? For reference, it's important to know Malaysia, Indonesia, both countries beside each other, both very similar language, great economic and cultural ties. So you can kind of see why they caved to Indonesian pressure. Vietnam, different country, different ties. They can't exactly threaten Malaysia in the same way. So that's why Hyung obviously wasn't let off. But Malaysia were desperate to pin the crime on someone and Hyung was the scapegoat. However, by the 1st of April, a deal had been arranged. Hyung would plead guilty on lesser charges to voluntary hurt by dangerous weapons or means and were given a three-year, four-month jail sentence. However, this was backdated to when Hyung was first arrested and a third was taken off for good behaviour, meaning that she'd be finally released one month later on the 3rd of May 2019. So she was released and immediately flew back to Vietnam. North Korea has never admitted to doing anything wrong in this case. They simply say Kim Jong-nam had a heart attack and the entire thing is just a misunderstanding. So to end the story, I just wanted to start with a quote which I found really relevant from a 2012 CNN article on Kim Jong-nam denouncing Kim Jong-un's North Korea. So he did this about a month after his father's death and this quote is from Professor Andrei Lankov of Kukmin University in South Korea. He said, Kim Jong-nam is away. He is secure. It is quite possible that all his siblings will die a violent death sooner or later. 
and he is likely to live until an old age, writing memoirs and explaining to everyone how misunderstood his family was. So this quote, it's the complete opposite of what actually happened, because there have been no reports of anything happening to Kim Jong-chul, Un's older brother. Like, he was reported to have very little to do with politics in Pyongyang. He plays guitar for different bands in the city. That's pretty much what he does. He was spotted at a concert in London, alive and well, about 10 days before the assassination of his half-brother. So you can simply say, look here, you know, if you don't denounce the regime, you might end up fine. Same for Kim Yo-jung, his younger sister. And basically, she became, like, the ambassador of North Korea to the South Korean Winter Games. She seems to have quite a good tie with her brother. And everything seems to be uh, quite fine between those siblings as well. Maybe it's less, here, Kim Jong-nam, you denounce your family and you'll live a bunch of time. Seems quite the opposite now. But who knows, who knows. North Korea is a strange place and you never know what will happen next. Actually, this was the story I originally wanted to tell about North Korea because I actually felt quite sorry for the women because... They were like rural poor girls who were tricked into doing something for like something that seemed almost too good. But, you know, $100 or $200 doesn't sound that much. But here, I would do a prank for $200 and, you know, for a month's wages. Can you imagine that for like 3000 US dollars or two and a half grand? And somebody says, here, would you act them Egypt here? I mean, I would totally fall for that and end up on a flight out to Prague and just like, Someone says, oh, here, do this funny thing. And then somehow I'll be in jail saying, oh, look, you killed this Russian dissident who Putin disliked. I'd be like, oh, God, how did this happen? So this story has always struck me as just very interesting. And I'm glad that it came to an end because I really didn't want to see anything happen to either of the ladies that this happened with. Different people suggested they knew what was going on. I think it's actually quite clear they probably didn't they probably didn't realize how serious it was i kind of felt like sorry equally for both women but when aisha got off and hyung was in jail i was just like i really hope this lady doesn't get hung because i don't really think it's her fault and i was actually quite glad that she didn't i think we can also from this story kim jong-un like his father and grandfather is quite the boy for the purges quite the boy for uh, a lot of violent executions and if I'm thinking sensibly to myself, I probably shouldn't be calling him the boy because if someone listens from North Korea, they'd find that disrespectful and I might have my name on the list. So retract that. Yeah, no, I think it's important to note he took his uncle and aunt's power and when it was useful to him. But, you know, within pretty much two years of taking power, he'd completely killed both of them just to like retain power. He was clearly doing the same against Kim Jong-nam. I'm a little bit confused, like, was he doing it because Kim Jong-nam was denouncing the regime? I think this is possible. I think it's also possible because he was the older brother, but, you know, Kim Jong-chul, he also was the older brother. Nothing really has happened to him. Maybe it's because he was a full-blood sibling that, like, Kim Jong-un would trust him more, but, yeah, no, I just think, like, it shows you the ruthlessness of the regime. And it's actually quite shocking. So, yeah, to me, I just always was interested in the story. And I'm glad that both ladies have got out of prison alive. Yeah, that's what I think about this story. So, thanks a lot for listening, guys. This is the end of part two. I don't think there's going to be a part three. 
unless something major happens because like i could go into here do you think that uh trump's being scapegoated and kim jong-un is playing him but you know i think that's actually a really unique situation and actually really hard to tell anyway when it comes to north korea i think maybe you know he's doing almost a version of the sunshine policy between 2000 and like 2010 that he's trying to bring them to the table and he might just be the person to do it but who knows there's different people saying trump is scapegoated and kim jong-un's just using him to get rid of sanctions and stuff so that would be a possible idea but i think you'd need to let a bit of time settle like for this episode i had planned to do it but it's only really been a feasible episode since the end of May, since Hyung got released. Because, you know, I don't really like leaving cliffhangers. I mean, we did leave a little bit of a cliffhanger for our GoFundMe episode, where we're talking about uh, different people who are getting in trouble with the law. And just to let people know, all those people were found guilty and sentenced to jail, which hadn't happened when the episode was released. But I kind of felt at the time it was pretty obvious to what was happening the Trump Kim Jong Un situation, I don't think it's quite as obvious. Who knows? There might be a potential situation that someone's listening to this in a reunified Korea at some point. So, yeah, I don't want to sound like I know everything because I clearly don't. And again, pronunciation, I tried hard with this one. Again, trying to read a script with all the Korean names was a little bit difficult. I should have probably done better with a few of the names, but here yeah i think that worked yeah this hopefully is going to be out on monday morning like the last episode i promised it will be out on monday so i'm going to be editing it tonight making sure that uh hopefully this is out so if this is out on tuesday i'm going to sound like a bit of a jerk but hopefully you guys forgive me about this i'm also going to try and get the next episode out next week so uh next monday so try and get it free in a row free in 14 15 days <laughs> I think that would be a record apart from our first five episodes, which were very, very close in order. So, yeah, guys, uh, thanks very much for listening. If you want to contact me, contact me at scapegoatpodcast at gmail.com or at scapegoatpod on uh, Twitter. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. If you've got any episode ideas, please contact me. I noticed with the last episode, and for a lot of recent episodes, we actually do have a lot of fans in uh, Taiwan. Hi guys, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, proportionally for the size of the country, you're the highest proportion of fans I think we have. Like We had more people in Taiwan listening to the last episode than Ireland, which I found truly shocking. So hopefully that's good. And going by my misunderstanding of Taiwanese politics, I probably have now lost any potential of any Chinese people listening because they'll be like, oh, he said Taiwan and he didn't say this. So no. Like, it kind of reminds me of a bit of a story when I was living in South Korea. There was this girl band called Twice. And uh, one of their members was Taiwanese. And basically, uh, she was like the youngest member. I forget what her name was. But she ended up causing a huge international incident. And she was like 16, 15 at the time. That, like, they were simply saying, what is your name and where are you from? And they were like oh, hi, I am this person from Japan. Hi, I am this person from Korea. And she was like, somebody said, oh, my name is, and I am from. And then the Chinese media saw this and they were just like, yep, you need to send out a written apology for not saying you are Chinese. You were saying you're Taiwanese. Being Northern Irish with this distinct different political identities 
it's always kind of scary to be in any situation where people are insisting you have to apologize for saying you're one thing or another and to happen to a child like that that's a story i wouldn't mind going into at some point but i would only last about five minutes but hey thanks very much for listening guys hope you have a good one okay bye